As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Calling all Narelle Fraser fans, Narelle is doing some very special shows for our patrons only, with Emily and I starting in Melbourne in October, with Sydney soon to follow. To buy your tickets, just use the top secret link on our Patreon page. It's there right now. But you can only access it if you are a patron. You can become a patron, of course, anytime you want, by going to patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. That's A-U-S-T True Crime Pod and choosing either a two or a five dollar a month subscription. Okay, big thank you shout outs to our newest Patreons, patrons, Patreon patrons, Kylie Turton, Maria Jacob, Jenny McCasker. McCusker, Janine McCusker, actually, Janine Gearan, 
Sarah McEwen Turner. That is a really good name. Sarah McEwen Turner. Solid. Tiffany Sharples and her friend Laura Smith. Lauren, Deanne LaRocca, Lisa Marie Gibbs, Kate Ween and Tammy. Thank you so much to all of those good, good people. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime, A-U-S-T, True Crime Pod, Aust True Crime Pod, and committing 2 or $5 in American money a month, every month, and you can get an extra episode a month and case updates and private chats. I was on chatting with all of those people today. That's how I know that they haven't had their shout-outs yet, and I said to them, Oi, I'm editing today. You're getting them. Be listening. See, you can do all that on Patreon. It's fun. Get on it. Okay, on with the show. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I think for me it gets to a stage where I had just one murder pile up, you know, on on top of the other. I had four really bad murders in the space of two months. And so it doesn't really allow you to process any of the jobs because you go into one job after the other job to the other. Linda Neal is an inspirational speaker, an author, and a board member of a not-for-profit organisation that she co-founded. But in another life, she was a police officer involved in major homicide and drug investigations and a hostage negotiator trained at counter-terrorist level. I know what you're thinking, she must be a hundred years old, but she's not. Because like so many of the great former detectives we've met on this show... Belinda was still very young when she was medically retired due to PTSD. Today she tells us about one of the cases she now recognises as a major contributor to her early retirement. It came into her life unbelievably on her very first day in the Homicide Squad. It was the 13th of March 1996, the day she and the rest of Australia first heard the name Matthew DeGrucci. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. I answered the phone, Homicide Unit, Detective Neil. First time I'd answered the phone at the Homicide Unit and it was a reporter on the other end of the phone. And he asked if we had sent anyone to the triple murder at Albion Park. To be quite honest and upfront, I actually thought perhaps it was one of my old colleagues playing a joke. So I asked around the office and no one had heard of it, so I advised that I would have to make further inquiries and hung up the phone and then we later found out. Um, because what normally happens is the local police officers attend the scene, they see it something, they see the fact that it's a murder scene and they will contact us. So are you saying that a journalist phoned through and asked you mm. if you knew about the triple murder? How on earth did they know? Oh, look, some journalists actually listen in to police radio. Okay. So I would suggest it's come over police radio, the local police officers go to the scene, then they're calling for backup and that's how the journalist found out about the triple murder. 
So then the homicide units, um, we get into gear, we contacted them in this case and a group of homicide investigators then go down. So what the homicide unit does is we basically um, go down to help local police, you know, provide expertise to local police and it really depends on the case as to whether we um, stay involved, whether we take over the actual homicide or we just back up and support local police. In this case, we were providing them support because the most important time in relation to a homicide investigation is that first 48 hours. Really, really important in terms of all the information that actually comes in. So tell us about your feelings. Do you remember heading down to the scene? I mean, it's your first day in homicide. As you said, you've never seen a homicide scene before, I guess. And I mean, it's you know, I, I wouldn't be embarrassed to say that I was feeling some nerves and or even excitement. I know that's, you know, not, mm. you know, oh. that it is your job and this is your first day, so this is your chance to actually do it. What were your feelings? Yeah, look, um, there was certainly some trepidation mm. because it was a triple murder and there were teenage children involved, but I was looking at it in the sense of this is what I'm here for, this is what I'm at the homicide unit for, and I was looking forward to getting my hands involved in, in what was going to be a very interesting investigation. I went to the police station first. Um, the police had already been at the scene, so we went there first to meet up with police officers and have a briefing about what had happened. And we were told about the, the crime scene. So in that stage, um, Matthew DeGrucci, the 18-year-old son, was being interviewed by police. He was the one who had found his, um, found his mother in the state. And the father was also being interviewed, and I was actually taking the statement from the father. So, look, in this, in situations like this, everybody is a suspect. So, of course, you need to look at ruling out close members of the family, um, and also the investigation goes wider. So, I interviewed the father. I spent about five hours taking a statement from him in terms of where he was, um, and he was actually in Sydney that evening. He played golf in, in Sydney and stayed at his parents' place in Sydney. He was nowhere near, um, so he'd been ruled out as a suspect. Mm. How was and his How was his demeanour? I mean, what was his? They, they were still together as a couple, and uh... they were still together as a couple. However, there was some influence down the track um, that he may have had a girlfriend um, in Sydney. Now, um, I took the statement from him for five hours. So you're with this man for five hours because it's not just his wife who's been murdered. It's uh, how many of his children? Two of his three children. Two of his three children and you're with him for for five hours. For five hours, asking him questions over and over and over about where he has been, and meanwhile he's processing that information. Oh, it's tremendous! It's absolutely something. I've obviously spoken to a number of families of loved ones who have been killed or murdered, and you cannot even consider how they're feeling. It is just horrendous because it's it's a shock. Mm. You know, they, they, these people haven't died from natural causes. It, it's been instantaneous. It's been a shock. It must be absolutely horrendous for them. I, I can't even conceive being in, in their position. It's the worst day of his life and you're absolutely. a big part of it. And that's exactly right. Yeah. That's it. So it is a very intense situation um, and there's a lot of concentration and focus in relation to it because these people, even though 
you know, we, we of course, you know, family members can be suspects. It doesn't mean they're suspects all the time, mm. but they need, still need to be treated with respect because they may turn out not to be a suspect. Yeah, certainly initially we know that husbands are generally suspect number one in uh, the cases of dead wives. And he probably knew that. I don't know. He's in shock. This is, as I say, the worst moment of his life. But we have to get through that process with this man before he's Mm. allowed to go and get on with the process of grieving and all of that stuff as well. Of course. Absolutely. And they may well be in shock. Yeah. You know, certainly if they have had nothing to do with the actual murder, then they're, they're probably in shock. So... A very, very, very difficult situation and you do need to be really mindful as a police officer, Mm. not necessarily a homicide investigator, as a police officer, you need to be very mindful of this, very respectful, but it's about treating all persons with respect. Yeah, but you're able to eliminate him pretty early on. That's exactly right. Some information came out later on that his... um, uh, he, he had a, I think it was a dark blue Commodore, and his car had apparently been seen outside the house at 3 or 3.30 in the morning. However, that was um, able to be ruled out because his car was actually being fixed after a motor car collision and also the timings of the um, what the forensic pathologist came out with was the timings that the, the, the family had actually been murdered were between 8pm and 1am. So it's a forensic. What makes this case so important, I guess, is the forensic evidence. You know that we we no murder weapon was actually located, and initially there was no apparent motive. Although we we feel that he, Matthew Degrucci obviously had a an argument with his mother over taking the car to his girlfriend's house. That's what we believed, but it was the forensic evidence that was so powerful. It was a circumstantial case. Matthew was the surviving child, the 18-year-old son. He's next door being interviewed at the same time. How's he going? One thing that really surprised me um, was that he was a very slight, um, slight, insipid-looking boy. Um, Longish hair. There there was nothing startling about him, if, if I can say that. And when I saw the ferocity of the actual, how the, these, the victims had been attacked, putting those two together, was very difficult. Mm. You, you just you couldn't fathom the um, the amount of damage that had been done to these people. So the amount of anger that must have been involved in this particular attack. Did you go straight to the crime scene after the interview with the father? I did. Yes, I went um, with some other homicide officers. We went to the crime scene. The bodies um, had already been removed from the crime scene, and I saw them the next day because I um, was involved um, in the autopsy. Mm. So it was really interesting because, again, this is the first homicide crime scene that I've ever ever been to. It was just an ordinary suburban home. She walked into the into the house and into that first bedroom, which was the mother's bedroom, and that's really where the malady ended. Mm. The, there was a huge amount of blood on the, the bed um, where the mother had been killed. And what I was aware was that um, her injuries were so bad to her face, it appeared um, that a sledgehammer may have been wow. a murder weapon. That's very, very, very personal, isn't it, to inflict that much damage to a face? Yes, and the interesting thing was that there wasn't the big blood spray pattern that you might expect up the on the wall. There was a couple of small blood spots, and what that sort of lends you to think that is her face has been, um, a pillow has been held over her face. Okay. That has absorbed the blood. So that was very interesting. Not wanting to look at the face while inflicting the injuries. Mm, 
exactly. Mm. So the next room that I've walked into is the 13-year-old daughter's room. And I think what was so horrific about this room was that there was a Walkman lying next to her bed. And the, what we believe had happened is she may have been listening to music in the room and didn't hear what was happening in the mother's room. So I think that's so sad. That's such a typical teenager thing to do, to be listening to music at, my, at night. My my kids do the same thing. Yeah, definitely. But what we were aware at that stage, and I saw this the next day in the autopsy, was that she had um, bruising on her arm. So when she was attacked, she's actually raised her arm in a defensive motion and she's been hit on the arm. But it appears that a pillow has also been held over her face and that pillow with blood was next to the bed. And then you're stealing yourself. You're thinking, oh, my God, this is so horrendous. What am I going to see next? So walking through the house, the garage was the next place that I came to. And that particular crime scene was absolutely horrific. There was blood spatters on the ceiling of the garage. There was blood on the floor. There were teeth on the floor. So it had been a really, really horrific attack on the 15-year-old brother. Just awful. And what um, the forensic evidence in relation to that um, later showed that he'd been hit 21 times. And it looked like he might have just been in the garage doing some woodwork. I think there was a woodworking gun and, and a chair that he may have been working on. But the attack was frenzied. You know, so the the assailant has potentially come up behind him and just just absolutely attacked him from behind on his head. When he was found, his body actually had some blistering and peeling of the skin, and what we believe has happened because there was an open jerry can of petrol there. So it appeared that the assailant had been looked at pouring, started to pour petrol over him, and was potentially going to set him alight or set the crime scene alight. That for whatever reason, didn't happen. So it was a truly, truly horrible crime scene. It's probably, it's, I can honestly say it is the worst crime scene in my four years of homicide investigation. Oh, and it happened on day one. And it happened on day one. I'm aware that one particular police officer never went back to work after going to this particular crime scene. Is that right? Horrendous. You had the autopsies to attend the following day. How Do you remember the night in between, how you slept? or Because I know that what we're leading to later on in your career is PTSD and early retirement through PTSD. Mm. So this is obviously a, a very difficult case and another officer never returned after seeing that crime scene. So mm. do you have any recollection of your thoughts or your process through that night in between uh, seeing the crime scene and thinking to yourself, as you just mentioned, okay, I'm going to see the bodies tomorrow. What must they look like if this is what the room looks like? Oh, uh, look, absolutely. And I think there's a bit of shock involved mm. as well. And it's, there's that shock because I remember thinking, and it, I, I had these same thoughts in respect to another crime scene later down the track. It's it's like, no, 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 divorce yourself, divorce yourself from your emotions and focus on the evidence. Mm. And you actually, I recall saying that to myself, like try and forget about that, forget about that and just look at the actual evidence because my job is to try and work out who, wh- what happened. Yeah. 
So you've got to try and look at these people tomorrow as puzzles. As puzzles. That's exactly right. Mm. You know, what, what story can they actually tell us? And that's easy for me to turn around and say to you now. Yeah. But the actual, the images and the bodies themselves came up later down the track after I effectively had, you know, too many horrible images to think about. And this this really came up and it was like a video image of dead bodies. So I never truly processed that crime scene. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. So you, you went through the process. Were these your first? I mean, you would have attended autopsies as part of your training, right? So they're not the first autopsies you've ever attended. Yeah, actually it was. No. So we, as a probationary constable, one of the things that we all do, uh, we're all taken as, as training probationary constables to the morgue. Mm. And the object of that is that we will see an autopsy. However, on the day that I went, there was no autopsies. So I had never seen an autopsy. So, look, um, I was interested. I was interested in the process. And because now I had an autopsy where I'd actually been to the crime scene, there was that interest factor there. But that's fine until you actually go to the autopsy and, and, and watch it. Yeah, this is a tough one. Look, it was a tough one, and it was a tough one, I think, because of the ages mm-hmm. of, the ch- of the children at 13 and 15, and obviously the mother as well. And then because at that stage there was um, a lot of evidence that indicated that it just seemed very strange because I guess if we go back to the crime scene, the crime scene, apart from from the bodies, that the forensic attack on the bodies, it was actually made look like a robbery gone wrong. So one thing that really surprised me was that a video recorder um, had been taken out from under a TV, but three video cassettes that were right next to it hadn't been moved. So for such a frenzied attack, someone had really carefully taken out this video recorder without bumping and, or knocking the cassette tapes off, which seemed very odd. It looked like someone had tried to wipe up various aspects of the crime scene. There was some some carpet which had been cut out of the, the mother's room. And to me, that was very indicative that there might have been some evidence on that carpet that would point to the assailant or the offender. So there were a number of things which were very interesting there. Just the crime scene didn't make sense. The, jewelry, the mother's jewellery was still there. Yeah. You know, that a calculator had gone missing. You know, some some other really unusual things had gone missing. It just, the crime scene didn't make sense. Mm. So at this stage, you go with this. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Knowledge, and then you go into the autopsy, because we haven't got a murder weapon. So we need to try and find out. The bodies need to tell us what happened. Can we try and work out what happened and what the murder weapon was? One of the really interesting things that we um, found were these linear like tram tracks on um, Sarah, the 13-year-old girl, her arm, and also on the torso of Adrian, about 15 centimetres long or so. But there was also like a round, a cylindrical-type bruising on his torso as well. And it seemed to be the injuries themselves were consistent, um, either a sledgehammer, as I mentioned before, or the other thing we were thinking of is potentially a carjack or a wheel brace because it had that cylindrical end, but it also had the long, it could account for the long tram track marks. And this is, I guess, um, in terms of how police work, when we're getting information like this as, your, as the forensic pathologist is doing the examination of the body, mm. we're ringing his findings through to the investigating police back at Barilla. So they can take these on board and go and um, continue further investigations. So what was really interesting in relation to that was we sent them to go and check out the car, the mother's car, and the car then obviously became an exhibit. What um, they found in the car or was what they didn't find in the car that was really interesting. In where the wheel brace was kept, it was slightly ajar. The actual jack was there, but the wheel brace was missing. Mm. It's never been found. Never. Never been found. So we have no murder weapon. But we were able to get down the track a, um, a similar wheel brace and it, it fitted um, bruising, the patterns of bruising perfectly. Another really interesting um, piece of evidence that was found later in the car was the tuft of carpet and that was um, behind the driver's seat and it had a slight, um, appeared to be a blood stain on it. That was later tested and from memory I think the family were ruled out that it could have been Matthew de Gucci. So that was interesting. Okay. 
Was that the carpet from the mother's room? Uh, it was comparable with the carpet from the mother's room, yes. Okay. That's right. And that's, that becomes important later and some months down the track. After the break, a bizarre find closes the circumstantial circle around Matthew and police move in. Coming up on Australian True Crime, the Parole Board of New South Wales has recently made a recommendation concerning this case and I'll bring you up to date with the latest. But first, Belinda takes us back to the crime scene in Shearwater Boulevard, Albion Park Rail, an outer suburb of Wollongong, in New South Wales, where Jenny DeGrucci and her two teenage children, Sarah and Adrian, were brutally bashed to death in March 1996. So this has happened between 8pm and 1am, as far as the forensic pathologist goes. So that's what they've come up with by the end of the autopsies. What we know, though, is that Matthew had stumbled out of the home sort of, what, early morning the following day, saying that he needed help? Well, this is the interesting thing. Um, Matthew had rung his girlfriend about 8 o'clock and told his girlfriend he was coming over. But he didn't turn up till it was either 11 or 11.30 that night. And his girlfriend tried to ring the house at 10 o'clock, 10 p.m., and got no answer. So I think whether she was annoyed or not that she goes to bed. But then um, he turns up at 11, 11.30. And what he tells them is that he had to stay a bit longer at home because um, his mum had asked him to because they'd been getting some prank calls and someone had rung up saying um, three members of your family are going to be killed or are going to be dead or something along those lines. Oh, right. So I think it's very interesting that guess what, the right number of people were nominated in these particular prank calls. But down the track when police did um, checks on the actual telephone, these calls weren't showing up. And the calls that were were people that had rung and spoken to the mother. I think the, the mother's brother may have rung and they had a short conversation or something along those lines. So these calls that Matthew was talking about weren't recorded. So he comes home the next morning and he walks in, thinks, you know, the house is quiet, he goes into his mum's room, sees his mum, then he comes out and he's very distressed. And he runs, a neighbour sees him, he's distressed, and he says there is something wrong with Mum and Sarah. So the neighbour then goes into the house, goes into the mother's room, sees the mother, and then obviously the police are called, ambulance are called. Ambulance actually take away Matthew because of the symptoms he's showing, the distress and whatnot he's showing. But I think something very, very important he said here, he said to the neighbour there is something wrong with Mum and Sarah, and he never went in Sarah's room. He tells police he just went in the mother's room. So there's a a lot of different – this case was based around circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. So all these little factors weigh up and there's too many improbabilities, shall we say, in terms of um, what Matthew DeGritch actually says. Anyhow, Matthew is interviewed in in relation to all of this. Um, It's – We've got to wait, obviously, to try and get um, DNA testing in terms of the different blood samples. You know, there's some slight blood samples on the wall and in a a few 
places. But then some months later, in a dam, some boys find a bag. And inside the bag, there are some T-shirts. Um, I think there's, there's, there's a few different things. But one of the most interesting things in that bag is a resealable plastic Ziploc bag with a note in it. And on that note is other words, Sarah, Mum, Adrian, cut somewhere with knife, hit arm with pole, throw a bottle down here, um, T-shirts, um, knife, a few things like that. So it's a absolutely bizarre note. Now, it's like a to-do bring, list. It reads like a to-do list. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, bizarre. Um, and in that bag, there's also some carpet, and it's the same carpet from the bedroom, from the mum's bedroom, from Jennifer's bedroom. And there's a video recorder, which is the same video recorder that's gone missing from the house. So this is a really, really important bag. And Matthew's interviewed in relation to it. And he's interviewed in the, in relation to the note, which is found to be his handwriting. And he says he thinks it might be something to do with his 18th birthday plans, which is just <sighs> bizarre when you look at some of the things that are on there. It's, it's open blinds, open blinds to see Sarah, to see through and something on the bench. I can see it here. Th- to me, the weirdest thing is that it's in a Ziploc bag just to make sure it's safe in the water. I mean, it's one of those and, finds. And so, you know, it's just, you, you just couldn't, if you wrote it in a movie, it'd look ridiculous. Absolutely. But again, it's part of the circumstantial case. It's yeah. circumstantial evidence. So, and the, and the note was actually ripped up. So why mm. it was put in a Ziploc bag is, is beyond me. You, you don't... Well, it's trying to look into the mind of a killer. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It sh- luckily, it doesn't make sense to us. So what you're doing is you're helping us understand how important it is to get as many of these circumstances together when you don't have a murder weapon. That is exactly right because there was no direct evidence in relation to this. You didn't have the neighbour run in and see Matthew actually hitting his mother. You, you, that's direct evidence. So forensic evidence is circumstantial evidence. So this was a really, it was just a really, really interesting circumstantial case. Um, And because it was such a horrific murder, it was wonderful that there was so much forensic evidence, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because there were other things like, for example, on the jerry can, uh, Matthew's fingerprints were on the jerry can. But the issue with that is that he and his father both used the jerry can to fill up their cars with petrol. So that effectively is an explanation for his fingerprints to be there. Yeah, he lives there, so his fingerprints could be everywhere. But when you add that to everything Mm. else, yeah, you do start to build up a picture that's pretty compelling. Oh, look, that's that's exactly right, yes. At what point were police confident enough to actually arrest Matthew? After the exhibits in the dam were located. Okay. It, um, it that basically tipped it over the, for the amount of evidence that was required um, to, to charge him with murder. Okay. He's just, um, yeah, he just didn't have, when, you, when you're looking at the number and content of the telephone calls, but he can't clarify, that can't be clarified. One of the T-shirts, I think from memory he actually said um, one might have been his or Adrian's because there were two T-shirts that were found in the, um, in the bag. And I think the other one he said was linked to him by a friend after the murders, but that didn't make sense. No. Um, you know, the note, 
that that doesn't make sense. You know, the the fact that it was potentially for the birthday party. Um, police actually drove the distance from the family home to the dam and then to the girlfriend's house. And I think from memory it was around 25 minutes to half an hour to the dam and then another couple of minutes to the girlfriend's house. So they've done that a couple of times. So he's had time to get rid of um, the evidence. And obviously the carpet was tested as well. You've got the carpet. Mm, in his car and in the dam yeah. and oh, yeah. in mum's bedroom. So the girlfriend, I mean, it looks very much like her boyfriend's arrived at her home and spent the night with her after he's murdered his mum and brother and sister after an argument about whether or not he can have the car. So this, I think, is the scariest thing out of mm. the the whole entire case. If he's that sort of personality, you know, are we talking sociopath, psychopath, that he can then just act as if nothing had happened and he's when you consider the porosity of the attack and all the time that he's been in jail, he has never, ever expressed remorse. He's never confessed? Never confessed. No remorse, no confession. And he is now up for parole, which I think is very scary. He's at the same age as what his mother was when she was killed. So that was day one. I spent four years in homicide investigation before I decided that it was time to – actually, my first child was born, my first son was born, and I decided I didn't want the option of potentially having to go to a child uh, yes. homicide, mm-hmm. child murder, so it was time for me to leave, and I was actually promoted out to to a local area command as um, the detective sergeant and walked straight into more murders. Basically, the local police are always first on the scene before the homicide come in, and we did get, when I arrived, it was actually a murder that had already occurred, and then a couple of years, oh, I think it was, um, it was actually, we had another murder. I was actually pregnant with my second child when we had another really um, horrendous murder to attend, and, um, you know, the body had been there for a couple of days, and it had been steamy February weather, so the, the smell was absolutely incredible, and being pregnant, I was um, 12 weeks pregnant at the time, um, my sense of smell was heightened. So yeah. that was a horrendous murder, yeah. that particular one. I think for me it gets to a stage where I had just one murder pile up, you know, on, on top of the other. So when I was in the homicide unit, I had the Degrucci murder, which was my first day, and then another horrific murder, which I went to eight days later. I had four really bad murders in the space of two months. And so it doesn't really allow you to process any of the jobs because you go into one job after the other job to the other. And I'm sure with um, other police officers and investigators that you've spoken to, you're working really long shifts because the first few days are so important. You know, at one stage I, you know, was doing a 24-hour shift just because of the amount of evidence that it's actually coming in. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to have a drink of water because yeah, I can no, feel my voice going. No worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I wonder if – I mean, you would know better than me. Uh, don't you, don't talk. You drink. <laughs> um, if your uh, throat constricts sometimes when you're thinking about it and talking about it. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes um, your throat can constrict when you don't want to talk. Yeah. It's like a subliminal message that you don't want to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. Because now we're sort of moving towards the PTSD conversation Mm. Yeah, where your brain and your emotions sort of start to do something to 
let you know that you can't keep working like that, don't they? Oh, look, absolutely. And um, look, I think we've – I have, I've learned so much, um, which I just wish I had have known back then in, in relation to having downtime and allowing – allowing the brain to process different things or if I had have had a partner who understood in terms of um, the different signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress then I would have got help a lot earlier. But I recall being, it was really interesting, after the first couple of months where I in the homicide unit where I had some extraordinary jobs and murders that I went to, I remember talking to my supervisor about some old drug squad investigations and I burst into tears. And I remember thinking I was mortified, absolutely mortified. Here I am amongst a group of you know, really tough investigators and I'm in tears talking about some drug investigations, which <laughs> made absolutely no sense. And I ran to the toilet and I could not for the life of me explain. I'm thinking, what's wrong? But I can look back on that now and go, my mind was just too full and it couldn't process everything that I'd just been to. And that's why it's so important, I think, for supervisors is to go, oh, what's happened with Belinda? Well, let's look and see what she's been to. Oh, she's been to the, to the Gucci murders, the Kim Meredith murder, the Paula Brown murder, you know, this particular matter. Maybe we need to have a chat to her and see if she's okay. We know that now, mm. but I wish I had have known that back then. Yeah. Because I didn't know why I was acting. And then by the time, for me, Look, I, I started to become very forgetful. I remember driving home from work one day and I ran a red light and it wasn't until another car sounded a horn that I realised I'd, I'd run the red light. I was having horrendous nightmares of both of my children being stabbed and murdered in their beds and I'd have to get out of bed and go and check them to make sure they were still okay and I was doing that four or five times a night. So now we've got sleep deprivation on top of that. I remember my beautiful little five-year-old boy summed up my disposition one day and said, please, mummy, don't be angry all the time. And even, oh, God, even today, that absolutely killed me. Yeah. Now, is this this August, by the way, I'm seeing online that you're speaking at the Fearless Conference in this, on the Sunshine Coast? Oh, I'm very excited about this. This is actually, um, I'm actually a board member for this not-for-profit charity called Fearless, PTSD mm. Australia and New Zealand. And we're running the first national conversation on PTSD. And it's been run over three days. There are going to be some amazing speakers. We're going to have lived with experience speakers. So those who have been through, like um, we'll have a firefighter on the panel, a police officer, a war vet, um, Natasha Exelby, um, a journalist will be speaking as well. I'll be doing a keynote. But the other thing which has never been done before is we're going to have a panel of family members who will come and talk about what it's like living with somebody with PTSD. And on the last day, we're actually looking at um, workshopping and management protocol for PTSD. I think sometimes we forget that PTSD isn't just about first responders and war vets. You've got your sexual assault victims, you know, your child abuse victims, your domestic violence victims, your serious car accident victims. They can all get PTSD. Matthew DeGrucci appeared before a parole hearing last week via video link from Silverwater Prison. The hearing was called because the New South Wales State Parole Authority has already formed an intention to grant parole. They did it a month ago. His legal representative told the hearing 
Her client had demonstrated he is not a risk to the community and he has a strong, structured plan for post-release. He has the support of his father, now a pensioner who lives in Tasmania, an aunt and his elderly grandparents. She told the hearing De Grucci has also obtained a bank account, a Medicare card, a tax file number, birth certificate, photo ID, a forklift licence and a learner driver's licence. It was also reported in 2017 that De Grucci had been working on a day release program in a country abattoir in preparation for freedom. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.